I invite you as you're taking your seats to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Sadly, in the life of the church, in the history of the church, it's not been uncommon to see Jesus Christ pushed out the door. It happens subtly, it happens over time, but eventually in many churches, in many places, what once began and was centered upon Jesus Christ, what once was seen as the cornerstone Jesus Christ, is uprooted and removed and oftentimes thrown out the window. This has always been the case in the life of the church. We can trace this all the way through history. And in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon saw this as a massive problem in the church. He was looking around at his contemporaries, and he was living at the height of the Enlightenment, the height of modernity, and the height of the liberal movement where the Bible was being jettisoned and Jesus Christ was being questioned. And so he was essentially eliminated from the life of the church in many pulpits and therefore in the life of many Christians. Church became about something other than Jesus Christ. The Christian life in many ways became strangely about something else other than Jesus Christ, maybe social reform or some kind of behavior modification, but Christ was pushed out of the doors. And in great dismay, he looked at the evangelical landscape and here's what he had to say specifically to his fellow preachers of the gospel or preachers who filled pulpits in the church and to Christians. He said this, leave Christ out? He said, oh my brethren, better leave the pulpit out altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last, certainly the last that any Christian ought to go to hear him preach. He said this another time, he said, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ. A sermon without Christ in it, he says, is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Church, the good news is as we look at the word of God and we look around at the world, we can acknowledge and we can confess that we have something worth preaching, amen? We preach Christ. We are not about anything else but preaching Christ. Our hearts are fixed upon Jesus Christ. If you're guessing what the theme of this sermon is, guess no longer. What is it, church? We preach Christ. We preach Christ. There is no other message that the world needs to hear. There is no more important message that we need to constantly hear. There is nothing more important than we can bring to the world than the message of Jesus Christ. And I would go so far as to argue that in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, there should be nothing more important than this concept. We exist to preach Christ. And from this text, I want to show you a number of things related to that. The first is this. We preach Christ at all costs. We preach Christ at all costs. And look at verses 13 with me. We're picking back up. Just briefly, real quick, the context. Paul and Barnabas had been sent off from the church in Antioch, and they had been taking the gospel 
and preaching and proclaiming the word of God, and they have bumped up against some opposition, and, and God has seen fit to allow a satanic messenger, a man named Bar-Jesus, Elemis the magician, fueled by demonic influences and demonic power, he confronts Saul and Barnabas. And in the moment, Saul looks at him and filled with the Holy Spirit, he convicts this man of his wickedness and sin and he blinds him in the moment, displaying the dominating, victorious power of God. Reminding us that there is no power that can come against us. That greater is he he who is in us than he who is in the world. That Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Saul and Barnabas pick up shop and they head out with the gospel, taking it forward, advancing the cause of Christ. And verse 13 says this, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. We preach Christ, and we preach him at all costs. That means this, we preach Christ no matter what dangers or difficulties are involved. And as we look at this beginning of this missionary journey in the life of Barnabas and the Apostle Paul, one of the things we need to acknowledge, and that maybe isn't quite seen at first glance in the text, is that this was an incredibly difficult and dangerous mission that they were embarking on. This was incredibly costly, and it was not for the faint of heart. And I would argue that Christianity is not for the faint of heart. And we can learn some things from them as we dig into this text. The first is this. We preach them at all costs, and here's what that can look like for you and me. Model after them. Be faithful. Be faithful. And by that I mean this. Do what others will not as they take this gospel to these cities, by the way, they're branching into the area, the region known as Galatia. So when you read in your Bibles the book of Galatians, you can know this, that Paul is writing to a region, a group of churches that he is now going to be preaching the gospel to. And this letter in Galatians was meant to be circulated around these churches. What you may not know is this, that as Paul and Barnabas embarked on their journey, they brought along this young man named John Mark. And John seemed to have a good start. They obviously saw that there was a, a measure and a degree of faithfulness in this young man. Otherwise, they would not have brought him. They thought, surely he will be a help to us. Surely he will be a blessing to the ministry. But what we read here in verse 1 is that John left them and he returned to Jerusalem. Now, that may not seem like a big deal as we first read it, but if you just hold your finger in Acts 13 and flip a couple pages in your Bible to Acts chapter 15. We read the words of the apostle Paul as he looks back on this event, and what we see is this was much more of a big deal than we first see. Chapter 15 in verse 37, listen to what it says. It says, now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. That's this John who had just left them and gone back to Jerusalem. 
But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn, or one, this can be translated like this, one who had deserted them, one who had abandoned them. One who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. I mean, this was such a big deal. Verse 39 says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Here's Paul and Barnabas working together on this missionary journey. And Paul says that John deserted them. He abandoned the mission. He refused to take part in the work. He refused to count the costs. He took the easy way out. Here we are, trudging away through dangerous territory, and John Mark abandons us when the going gets tough. How easy it would have been for the Apostle Paul at this moment to feel the weight of discouragement. How easy it would have been for him to be so discouraged and so disheartened that the whole mission maybe was knocked off course, even if it was momentarily. How heartbreaking it is, listen, how, how often this happens in the life of the church, that there are people who appear to be walking the course well, people who appear to be faithful, people who appear to be serving the Lord, and then all of a sudden they're nowhere to be found. How hard it is for us when we see those we know and we love, not counting the costs. It reminds us, listen, that when we preach Christ, it's not going to be easy. Clearly, John recognized it wasn't going to be easy, but instead of being faithful, he abandoned the mission. And I want to encourage you, church, listen, don't abandon the mission. Be faithful to what God is calling us to. We preach Christ. Notice this secondly, not only be faithful, but be courageous. And here's what I mean by that. Go where others will not You'll notice that the, the names of the cities are mentioned here. What you might not know is this. The, the road from Perga to Pisidian Antioch was a hundred-mile journey marched by foot in treacherous conditions. It was a difficult and dangerous path to be taken. In fact, Alexander the Great said it was the most difficult terrain he ever traveled. It was the one thing he thought might halt his cause. It wove through the rugged Taurus Mountains where there were massive cliffs, dangerous rivers, narrow paths, rivers that were often flooding, flash floods that would swipe people away. These mountains were notorious for bands of robbers who would live there and pillage those who came through. In fact, I, I wonder if this is what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is speaking of what it cost him to be an apostle, to be a, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And he says this in 2 Corinthians. You can just listen as I read it for you. Chapter 11, verse 26, he says that he was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. I mean, Paul just paints this picture that there was a great need to be courageous because there were so many dangers and dangers that you, you can't even fathom living in our context. I think Paul was talking about this journey. This was the most treacherous of conditions. And I would encourage you, listen, church, listen, listen following Christ is going to require that we rock, walk the roads that are often treacherous and dangerous. They're the roads less traveled, but they're the roads that God is calling us to walk, that we must count the costs. 
We preach Christ and we're called to be faithful, to be courageous, and then lastly, listen to this, we're called to be prepared. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul, we saw this last week, is that he was so strategic, he was so intentional when it came to the preaching of Christ. You'll notice that as they made their way into Antioch, this is a different Antioch from the other one, by the way, they find themselves on the Sabbath day, the Word of God tells us that in verse 14, and they began to go into the synagogue and they sat down. This was their normal practice. They, they went into the synagogue because it was there they knew that they would get a hearing. He understood the culture of the synagogue. He, he knew that it was the same across the board in the ancient world. You would often walk into a synagogue and there would be these common readings, a very common process. You'll notice that after the reading from the Law and the Prophets, they would walk into the synagogue and every, every synagogue would start by the recitation of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one and we will love the Lord our God and so on and so forth and that would transition into times of prayers and times of reading the scriptures. And what was customary in the ancient days was that oftentimes if a visitor was there, somebody uh, even who is maybe of a higher pedigree, maybe a religious uh, a training background, maybe they would be called upon to give a word of encouragement. That's another way of saying opening up the scriptures and, and expositing. Bring a sermon for us. You know what's so fascinating is that this, this practice is still taking place in, all, in other parts of the world. In fact, when I was in Nepal, one of the common practices was this. Every time we went to visit another church, you want to know what we could expect? One of us as pastors was going to get asked to preach. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I mean on the spot. Like we walk in the door, we introduce, hi, I'm Ian. Oh, Ian's a pastor. Oh, great. Will you preach for us today? And you know what I was thinking? I, I, all I could think of was like, what about the guy who prepared all week? He gets a week off next week. That's what he gets, right? But, it, but it, listen, this, it struck me that I knew when I was living, when I was in that context, I always had to be prepared. You know, it's often been said that a preacher has to be willing to preach, pray, or die within a minute. You heard that before? Can I just suggest to you that I think that that needs to be true of every single follower of Jesus Christ? That we need to know the gospel, love the gospel, believe the gospel, and be ready to preach the gospel in a moment's notice. And I was thinking back to this context and in Nepal, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if we just tried this out? Like, just try it out this morning, like right now. Let's, like, like, how about I just walk out here and I just find somebody and I'm just going to tap you on the shoulder and you can just get up there and I'll only ask for five minutes and you can just get up there and you get up and you preach Christ. Everybody ready? All right, who's going to be? Oh, so tempted. So tempted. Listen, my point is this. How prepared would you be? How prepared would you be to stand up and preach Jesus Christ? And what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul is that there was never a moment where he was not prepared to stand up and preach Christ, and that's exactly what he does. And this is not a mistake. This is not an accident. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he was going to be called upon. He probably walked in with his rabbinical garb. He, he was highlighted when he walked in the door, that man is a rabbi. Oh, oh Paul, oh, we've heard of you. You studied under Gamaliel. We would, we would love for you to stand up and give to us a word of encouragement today. And I love this. Without a moment's notice, no hesitation, here's Paul. He stands up, he motions with his hands, and he commands the attention of the audience. You people listen to what I have to say today. 
And how awesome would it be if the church was that prepared with the gospel of Jesus Christ that everywhere we went, we were looking for those opportunities, we were ready for those opportunities, we were praying for those opportunities, and when they came across, we were not going to sit and stay silent. We were going to stand and declare. And how desperately the church of Jesus Christ needs a people who will not sit silent and who will stand and proclaim, we preach Christ, amen? And we preach him at all costs. Secondly, notice this, we preach him as the climax of history. We preach him as the climax of history. We preach him as the pinnacle of all of history. Every part of history is ultimately pointing to this final key point, Jesus Christ. They went about proclaiming the word. We saw that in chapter 13. And maybe you're, you're asking yourself, what did that look like? It looks exactly like this. They preached Christ. Old Testament straight into the revelation of the New Testament. They saw Jesus Christ and they lifted him up so that all might see. Now watch this. The basic thrust at the beginning of Paul's sermon here establishes the sovereignty and control of God over all of human history. And he's doing that intentionally to show, look, God has always had a plan. History's not random. God has always been moving it, pushing it, just driving it towards one key point. And so he begins to preach And he says to them in verse 17, look at it with me, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great. Don't miss there. God's sovereign rule over choosing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He chose the nation of Israel and he did so not because they were worthy, not because they were better than anybody. In fact, just the opposite. He's saying, God chose our fathers and he made the people great. And during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm, he led them out. Look at the, look at the driving force and hand of God in history. He led them out of Egypt. Now you have to remember that the Exodus story was the most important story in the history of Israel. It was a reminder that though God had chosen them, they lived in bondage and slavery, and that their God was faithful to rescue them, to deliver them from the bondage. Verse 18, he says, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Remember that? You know what he's, he's testifying to here? Look, even when you're rebellious, even when you resist God's hand, God's still in control. God is still bringing about his plan. He put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. You have to remember here, he's preaching to a bunch of Jews who know and love their history. They know that God had promised to Abraham to give them a land. They know all of the details of their history, and they loved, by the way, the Jews loved hearing a recitation of their history. They loved being reminded of how God favored the nation of Israel, and God's hand of grace and kindness was upon them. And at this point in the sermon, all of the synagogue would have been saying, amen, Paul, preach it. 
Keep going, Paul. And Paul says in verse 20, all this took about 450 years. And then after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Remember the judges? I mean, the people of Israel, as they lived in their land, they rebelled against God. After all of God's faithfulness and kindness, here's what they did. They said, we will choose to do what's right in our own eyes. Forget about God, we'll worship idols, we'll live in sin, and eventually things got so bad, so chaotic, they cried out to God, God have mercy on us. They cried out in repentance, and God in his faithfulness and kindness sent judges, saviors, deliverers. Do you see the theme here? God always, always, always is sending deliverers for his undeserving people. Sound like anybody you know? Verse 21, then they asked for a king. They wanted another savior. They wanted one like, like, like them. They wanted a king like all the nations around them. And God, he gave it to them. He gave them a man named Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. He gave them a king that they wanted so that they might see the king that they needed. And David kind of turns really quickly here and he says, and when he had removed Saul, when he had let them live for 40 years under a tyrant and a man who abused them and was not following him, he raised up David to be their king. And he's saying, look, this is the king that you're looking for. This is the kind of king that I'm going to provide for you. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And the synagogue stands to their feet and says, hallelujah, yes, that is our God. And they were loving every word, hanging on every word as he preached the history of Israel. And all of a sudden, he turns it on them and he says something that they were not expecting. He says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Notice the name there. You see that? Jesus, as he promised. See what he's saying? He says, don't you look at all of your history. In all of your history, God was promising to bring ultimate deliverance, an ultimate deliverer, and all of these other circumstances and events and deliverers, they all pointed to the greatest deliverance of all. They pointed to this one, the climax of all of that history. It's all about Jesus, and Paul is saying, you need to see him. And then he turns and he says, in Look, look, God, God loved you so much that he prepared you for this and he appeals to John the Baptist. Look at verse 24. He says, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. John the Baptist is mentioned in scripture as the greatest man that ever lived before Jesus Christ. There was no one greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest prophet of them all because he was the one that paved the way for Jesus. He was a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And here's the truth. Listen, these Jews, they knew that prophecy in Isaiah. They knew that God was going to send a forerunner. They knew that when that forerunner came, the Messiah was near to them. And so Paul's saying, don't you see? God, God let everything fall into its place. And he even called you to repentance. He, he called you to recognize that you had turned from him and that you desperately needed the Savior of all saviors. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. 
No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not even unworthy to untie. He says, don't you see? You know, the people were looking at John and they're saying, John, are you? Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the great prophet we've been waiting for? Are you going to be our savior? He said, don't look at me. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I am nobody. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Now, you have to understand the humility of John in that statement. It was not allowed for a Jew in that culture, the lowest level servant of a Jew, could not untie somebody's sandals. That was, that was regarded as, as a Gentile job. It is beneath the Jew. And John is saying, I am not even close to Jesus. I am no savior. One is coming who is going to be so much more than me. I love that. Listen, because when we preach Christ, here's what needs to happen. We need to be like John, right? We need to fade away and uphold Christ as the all in all. He said, John pointed to Jesus as the climax of history. And you know, if, if you've ever been working on a puzzle, you know, and you, you're starting to put the pieces together, you're getting close to the end, and you, and you realize that, that that final piece is missing. You ever been there? It's like the most frustrating thing in the world, isn't it? Like, I remember seeing that piece somewhere, right? I, I saw it, I know exactly what that piece looks like, and you look around, it's like it's disappeared into thin air, and you just think every, and this last 10 hours I spent on this puzzle is now a whole waste of time. But when you put together a puzzle, listen, what began as a somewhat blurred, obscured, ambiguous picture begins to come into focus with every piece that is laid. But it is utterly incomplete without that final piece. It is frustratingly incomplete. And Paul is looking at the Jews and he's putting all the pieces in place. He started with the border and he's begun to move inwards. And finally at the very center is that final piece. And he's pressing it in and showing them, look, look, look. This is the final piece that everything has been waiting on. And can I just encourage you, there's a principle here that we can apply in our evangelism, that is this. We need to share the history and the story of God as we tell people about Jesus. We need to show people that this is the way that God has always planned things. We need to back up sometimes, way back, right up to creation, and show how God has always been in charge of history, and all of history has been heading towards one central figure, Jesus Christ. We have the picture, right, church? We have the, the box in front of us. We know what it's supposed to look like, and we can tell them of God's planning of history, and it is our joy to preach Christ at the climax of all of history. Paul lays that out before them, and then he says this, and here's what we can grab from here. We preach Christ as the way of salvation. We preach Christ as the way of salvation. Verse 26 is a turning point in the sermon he begins to make his appeal. He begins to offer this salvation to them. And you'll notice there's a, there's a sweetness, I think, to the, the, the Apostle Paul. Notice how he speaks to them, verse 26, brothers. This is not an unimportant term, and here's what it displays. It displays that Paul has a great degree of love and compassion for the people he is sharing Christ with. And I can tell you this, if you read Romans chapter 9, Paul so loves the nation of Israel, he says that he would rather be accursed. He would rather lose his own salvation. He says, I would gladly give it up if it meant that God would save all of Israel. 
Tell me, tell me that that gripping passion didn't drive him to try and persuade and present Christ. In church, listen, listen, this is important because we will never preach Christ, we will never preach Christ unless we love him that much and unless we love others that much. So if you're sitting here today and you're wondering, like, why don't I preach Christ? Maybe you can start here. God, help me to love the gospel more and help me to love the people you love more. God, give me a love for lost sinners. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Listen, listen to this expression, I love this. To us, so personal. He's like, I'm in this, included in this too. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. You know what he's saying? Look at God's grace. Look at how kind God is that he would send us this message of salvation. And he begins to tell the story of Jesus like he told the story of Israel. And in doing so, what I want you to see here is that he focuses on two great saving events of God. He focuses on Jesus' death and his resurrection. And he demonstrates, this is so powerful, listen, he demonstrates that both of those things function as fulfillments of what God has always planned and always told his people he would do. In other words, it's not like God was up in heaven trying to think up a way to deal with the nation of Israel and thinking, oh my goodness, they've done it again. What am I going to do now? Maybe I've got to come up with a better plan. No, that's that's exact opposite of the way God did it. He saw before he created the foundations of the world how humanity was going to rebel. He knew that they were going to be sinful. He knew that they were going to reject his authority. And he planned before we were ever created the way of salvation for us. And he says to them in verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, remember this is the message of this salvation comes to you, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because, listen, they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. You know what he's saying? He's like, look, look, I know that all of this whole Jesus dying on a cross seems crazy, but you need to understand that God promised that it had to happen this way. And we could go through the Old Testament and I could show you scripture after scripture after scripture of how God fulfilled exactly what he said he would do. I mean, you, you, right down to the amount of money that Judas was given, 30 pieces of silver, that was prophesied. And though, look at verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. He's just walking through, he's just walking through the story of Jesus, but just, just note this, the content of the gospel is critical in explaining salvation to people. He talks about the death of Jesus In verse 29, he says, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. At this point, the the synagogue would be asking one question. How could our leaders have messed this up so big? 
How could our leaders, the, the, the leaders, and by the way, they prized their leaders. They loved their leaders. They trusted their leaders. And so they're, they're, they're probably skeptical of what Paul is saying, but there's probably a, a little bit of angst and anxiety as they consider the truth that he said. He's, he's saying that our leaders condemned the Savior, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for to death. This is mind-boggling to them. How could they have missed it? How could they have missed it? And, and, and Paul is very clear. He says, the reason they misunderstand is because though they have the scriptures, look, and though they read the prophets every Sabbath, they totally misunderstood the Messiah. And that's the only explanation, isn't it? They could read all of these prophecies, and we can go through Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, and we could, we could look back at Psalm 2, we could look back at a number of different places in the Old Testament where it makes it very clear that the Savior must die. He must pay the penalty for sins. We could look at all the types in Scripture. We could look at the, the lambs that were brought in every year and slain. We could look at the role of the high priest, and we could see that every year God was saying, something needs to die to pay for sin. Something needs to die to make us right with Him. Something needs to stand in the gap between us as sinners and God as perfectly holy. What is that going to be? Who is that going to be? And the truth is that they could not grasp a Savior that had to die. It was utterly unthinkable to them that they saw the Savior, the Messiah, as somebody who would be a conquering king. I mean, he would come and he would push out all of the enemies. Roman occupation would be done and he would sit on the throne and he would make Jerusalem great again. Israel would be the nation that all the nations flocked to and they would be in a place of prominence and power on the world scene. They could not get into their mind that God had to die. And Paul says that this continued to be a stumbling block to the Jews, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, and foolishness to the Gentiles. I wonder if you buck up against this when you share the gospel with people. I do all the time. It doesn't make sense to people, right? It just doesn't seem right. Like, what kind of a God actually comes to the earth and dies? I mean, I mean what, is that a God we can really love and adore and worship? And the answer from a Christian perspective is, absolutely it is. But to the world, it's foolishness. They want a God in their own image. And so often, church, I just want to encourage you, at the heart of our evangelism, it's often about establishing an ultimate authority, okay? When we share Christ with people, we, we often have to establish an ultimate authority. I'll, I'll, this comes up repeatedly in my conversation. I, I was sharing the gospel with one of my neighbors this summer, and I was, I was talking to him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He kind of looked at me and said, well, that's one way, but there's all these other kinds of ways. And I just said, well, can I just press back on you on that. I think this is the only way. And he said, well, that's really narrow. You know, he's like, that sounds really narrow. And I said, he, he said, well, what gives you the right to say that that's the only way? And I said, well, God says it's the only way. And he says, well, who made God the authority? It's like, <laughs> uh, can I just record that and play it back? And you can tell me how foolish that sounds. But listen, listen, he's only expressing what all people really believe. Who made God the authority? Wasn't that the first sin? 
Who says God has to be the authority? I want to be the authority. I want to be God. Why can't I determine what way is best? Why can't I make my own way of salvation? This is the fundamental problem of humanity, right? And at the heart of our evangelism, we need to bring people back to the reality that they are not the ultimate authority. God is the supreme authority. And if there is a God who spoke creation into existence, there is a God who rules and reigns supremely, there is a God who establishes the right and the wrong, he is the one that must be obeyed. And God's ways, listen, God's ways are not our ways, right? And let's be honest, when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reason this is such a stumbling block and offense is because no human being in their right mind would ever concoct a salvation message like that, right? One human being would paint a picture of a God who dies. Only God, only God. Jesus is God's way of salvation. We preach Christ. And when we preach Him, we preach Him as the way, the truth, and the life. We preach Him as God's designed way of saving humanity. And I love this in verse 31. He, he highlights the fact that there are witnesses, right? He's saying, look, just, you just got to know this. He's like, people saw this, verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. He's saying, look, look, you think this message is crazy, but he appeared to 500 people. Acts tells us that. 500 people for 40 days after his resurrection. We saw him. People lived with him. People were instructed by him. This isn't something that is made up. People are giving their lives for this message. That's a powerful apologetic. Who gives their life for something that's not true? If they know it's not true. And Paul goes on in verse 32 to 33 to talk about how, yes, I understand that death is really hard to, to figure out. I mean, how could God die? But the reality is, and the, the joy and the, the truth that we celebrate is this, that our God is not dead. God raised him to life in verse 30, it says, right? And verse 32, and we bring you the good news and what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus And then he goes on to, to quote three specific texts to substantiate this claim that Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead. And, he, and here's, I love this, there's a great principle here that we can embrace. He wants to tell them the truth and he wants to show that God's word is the authority, right? Listen, whenever you're appealing to somebody, especially somebody who claims to love the Bible and believe the truth, and you know, they say they believe the Bible, but you're thinking maybe they're not saved, always appeal to the authority of God's word. Let God's word be the thing that they have to wrestle with, right? Hey, God says it, not me. It's not my word you have to trust. God's word says it. Now, you have to lead people there. It's not as plain to people, especially if they're non-religious. You have to take a slightly different approach. But listen, we need to have greater confidence in the word of God. Okay, the word of God is like a hammer. The word of God is like fire. The word of God can penetrate hearts like none of us ever could, Amen. We need to let the word of God do the speaking. And here is what David does. He begins to quote for them this three verses. And he says, look at the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's linking this idea of being God's son. 
to the promise that God gave to David and his descendant who was to sit on his throne, right? 2 Samuel chapter 7 talks about David, or God showed up to David and said, David, I'm going to give you a son, one who is going to rule and reign on your throne, and his throne will last forever and ever and ever. Now, you can imagine why the concept of the Savior dying would be hard then for a Jew to understand. What do you mean he's going to reign forever? If he's, de- if he's dead, he can't reign forever. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, but look, look, he said, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Every time you read that word begotten, here's what you need to think of, resurrection. You can do a study through the scriptures, through the New Testament, and every time that word is used, it's used in reference not to some kind of, you know, like the Mormons say that Jesus was created, begotten as created. No, begotten as he was brought back to life. Resurrection. It is the, the pinnacle of God's stamp of approval of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as God's son, the one he said who would come, that's the one. And so he's saying, like, don't you see? This was spoken in Psalm chapter 2, and then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. He says, and and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Again, remember, they're trying to process. How are we going to have the sure blessings, the permanent blessings of a king if he's dead? Well, the resurrection solves that problem. The resurrection makes these promises sure and permanent. The mercies and blessings could only come through a living Messiah, and that's what Paul is demonstrating. And then he goes lastly to Psalm chapter 16. He says, therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, now the Jews, many of them believe that this verse is speaking somehow of David. And remember, they, they just upheld David as the pinnacle of all kings, and maybe this, you know, they were looking to David, but, but they knew too, though, that David had seen corruption, so they, they thought this couldn't be speaking of David, so who is this one, this holy one, who will not see corruption? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The son of David, whom God resurrected, did not see corruption. And all three texts related to David, from whom God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. God kept his promise. You've got to see how he's just driving this into their hearts. God was faithful. God kept his promise. You missed it. Our leaders missed it. But here's the great news. Listen, there's still time. You know, oftentimes, I, I come across people who express to me a, a really a difficulty in trusting others. Maybe some of you, 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 you have that experience. Maybe you've been hurt by others. Maybe people who said they loved you most hurt you the most and hurt you the deepest and made promises that they broke repeatedly. And so now that scar means that you struggle to trust people. You just can't understand how somebody could be faithful, how somebody could be worthy of trust. And you see what David is, excuse me, what Paul is doing here is he, estab- is he establishing through history that God has never, ever once broken a promise to his people. Every single time God said he would do something, he did it. Every single promise he made, he fulfilled. And all of that fulfillment comes to fruition in Jesus Christ. And he's telling them, look, don't you see? God spoke, God did. God spoke, God did. And because God will never break a promise, listen, church, this is so practical for you, because God will never break a promise, you can trust him. 
Do you see how he's appealing to them? He's setting them up. Don't you see? This is the only one you can trust. Fulfilled prophecy means that we have a reliable God. He's never failed before. And here's the awesome news if you're in Christ. He will never fail you in the future. He is the climax of history. He is the way of salvation. And we preach Christ, therefore, as the hope for humanity. And that's what he does. Look at verse 38 through 43. He begins again to get very practical, and he wants to apply the gospel to their hearts. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. He comes to them and he says, Look, listen, there is hope for humanity only in Jesus Christ. Who else can do what Jesus can do? And he gives them two, two things to put their hope in. First is this, look, he gives them the hope of forgiveness. And then secondly, he gives them the hope of freedom. And I love this. This is so powerful. You have to look at God's word. You have to see this in God's word. The, the atoning death of Jesus the Messiah fully satisfied the demands of God's law, making forgiveness of sins available. Look at what it says, to everyone who believes. He offers forgiveness of sins. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting here today and you don't have a relationship with God and you need to understand what the Bible says, that you are in this desperate, depraved condition you are sinful to the core, and because of your sin, you're alienated from life in God, true life, true fellowship, true communion, the reason why you were created. And your sins have caused a massive chasm between you and God, and the only way for those sins to be dealt with is through Jesus Christ. It is only through the Lamb of God who would be slain in your place. All of your sins placed on him, and I love that. And, and if anyone who believes on him, they may have an uh, eternal life. But I want you to, listen, look here, loved ones. You have to see what the text says. The forgiveness is from all things. Did you catch that in the text? How, how awesome is that? How wide, how great, how magnificent is the mercy of God? It doesn't matter. Maybe you're like, I'm, I'm too sinful. You don't understand my past. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand how long I've lived in rebellion. You don't understand my perversion, my depravity, the pattern of my life. God says, I see it all. And there's not one thing in your life that I am not calling you to repent of that I will not forgive. There's not one thing in your life this day, right now. Isn't that good news? Like, that, is, that is the most incredible news. That should bring joy to your heart right now. There's nothing, nothing you've done, past, present, or future, that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All things. There is complete pardon for all sins. And look at this, it provides freedom from the burden of the law which can save no one. That's, that's Paul's way of saying it. it isn't about how good you are, it's not about how moral you are. Nobody can be justified by the works of the law. Nobody, nobody can make themselves right with God by simply working harder, by simply trying to be perfect. You cannot undo the sins you've already done. Only God can undo them and wipe them clean through Jesus Christ. 
You cannot earn righteousness. You cannot make yourself righteous. You have to have the imputed, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you. That's the only way you can be made right with God. And so he lifts here. Don't you see why this is freedom? He lifts this burden off of our backs and he says, hey, you who've been trying so hard to get right with God on your own terms, hey, you know what the good news is? Let me just lift that yoke off of you, that yoke of slavery. And if that has been burdening you today, listen, if you've been working hard to try and earn the favor of God, just drop that yoke right now. Better yet, let Jesus Christ rip it off your back. Because he says, what you think you can do, you can't. And what you need done is completed in me alone. This is great news. But with the great hope, there is a great warning And again, he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Habakkuk 1, verse 5. And he says, Beware, therefore, in verse 40, lest what what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. He reaches back into the history of Israel and Judah in their rebellion to God, listen, they turned their back on God. They wandered far from him, and God warned them. He said, he said I'm going to do a great work, and I'm going to bring great judgment upon you unless you turn and repent, unless you come back to me. And the Jews knew the history. They knew that Judah refused to repent. And what did God do? He sent an army of Chaldeans to just wreck and destroy them and drag them off into slavery slavery as an act of his wrath and judgment against their sinful, rebellious hearts. And God is saying this to us right now. Listen, listen. No gospel presentation is complete without the warning that unless somebody turns to God in faith in Jesus Christ, they will face certain judgment from God. And some of, listen, some of you in here, you've been trifling, you've been flirting with the gospel, and you've been flirting with the idea of coming to Christ, but you kind of, you still got one foot in the world, and you're saying, I still love the world too much, and you're saying, I've got lots of time to figure this out. And you know what? God, God really isn't going to treat me like, God really, he won't judge me. I've, uh, how many people do I have to talk to who tell me when they stand before God, their answer is going to be this, God, I've been good enough. God, I've, I, I mean, I'm not as bad as this person. God is saying, unless you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will face certain wrath and judgment. There is no hope for you. There is no hope for you apart from Jesus Christ. And so if that's you today, if you've been flirting, I want to tell you this. The Bible gives you no promise of another day. Stop flirting. Listen, look. look. Stop flirting with your sin. God does not trifle with sin. God will judge the sinner. Turn now and see God's mercy and grace extended to you. There was a choice given to everyone who hears the gospel, accept and receive blessing forever, reject and receive wrath forever. Jesus is the hope for humanity. He encourages the people to live in the grace of God. As they went out, verse 42, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Listen, there are people out there who long to hear the truth and long to have the hope of the gospel. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Listen, this is not about your good works. This is not about what you can do for God. This is all about what he's done for you. And you know what the scary thing is? The churches in Galatia would mix this all up again. 
And Paul would have to send them a letter and rebuke them for how they had reverted back to trying to earn God's righteousness through their own merit. Look, we preach Christ, and we preach Him as the hope for humanity, and lastly, we preach Christ with confidence and joy. Verses 44 through 52, let me just read them for us. It says this, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Look what God does through the faithfulness of two men. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Listen, whenever you preach the gospel, you just need to understand this. It will incite great opposition. It will draw crowds of people. It will draw individuals to hear the good news with excitement and joy, but it will also be polarizing. That's what the gospel does. It will create opposition. It will turn mother against father and sister against brother and child against parent. But I love this. Look at, look at the confidence as they're attacked, as they are attacked personally, and as the message is attacked, it says in verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. They spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, right? To the Jew first and then the Gentile. That was God's pattern. Start with the Jews, and when they reject, bring it to the Gentiles. And then listen to what he says. This is so crazy. Since you thrust it aside, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. In other words, he's saying, you think, you who think you can be righteous enough, reject the only righteousness that can actually save you. And behold, he says, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here's what the gospel also does. The gospel incites great joy in the hearts of many. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Don't you love that? I love people who rejoice and glorify in the word of the Lord. You know what they're excited about? They're excited that God was going to have mercy and grace upon them. Hey, church, are you excited about God's mercy and grace towards you? And here's where their confidence flows from. Look at verse 48, halfway through. Tell me this doesn't just instill so much confidence in your heart when you share Christ. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Yeah, opposition, sure. Persecution, sure. Bring it on. But the word of the Lord keeps marching forward. God will save every single person he's appointed. Isn't that incredible news? Listen, the weight of saving souls isn't ultimately upon you and I. Yes, we play a, a part in it. Yes, we have responsibility. And yes, the sinner has responsibility to repent and believe. And there is a mystery here in human responsibility and in the sovereignty of God that our minds cannot fully comprehend. But let us not mistake the point here. It's never a person's own choice that saves them. Not ultimately. It's always God's grace and mercy that leads them to repentance. Listen, the reason you are saved, you've got to hear this. This ought, to, this, this ought to so just fire your heart up with passion. The reason you are saved is because God appointed that you would know and love him. But the Jews, 
Look, as the word of God goes forth, it's not like the enemy retreats. Notice what happens. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And he drove them out of their district, but they shook the dust off from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Fine, if you don't want the message of the gospel, we've done our part. Our our hands are clean, right? Your fate is in your own hands. There is a time. Listen, there is a time that we need to keep moving on. There are people God is preparing who want to hear and who are willing to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. In verse 52, and the disciples, look at it, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This could have been such a massive setback, but instead, it just fuels the mission of the gospel moving forward. The confidence and joy, listen, this is so key to understand, flows from the sovereignty of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon said this, we serve an almighty master. If our Lord does but stamp his foot, he can win for himself all the nations of the earth against heathenism and Mohammedanism and agnosticism and modernism and every other foul error. Who is he that can harm us if we follow Jesus? How can he, his cause be defeated? At his will, converts will flock to his truth, as numerous as the sands of the sea. Wherefore, be of good courage and go on your way singing and preaching. Church, we preach Christ. May we preach him with the same confidence and joy.